In today's conversation, I am joined by President and CEO of the New Bedford Symphony Orchestra, Dave Prentice, as well as their Director of Education, Terry Wilkowitz, to talk about the success that they have found by applying a deeply community-centric approach over the past several years. Welcome to Pivot, the podcast that's dedicated to reversing audience decline through customer-centric innovation. I'm Ruth Hart. This is a story about an orchestra that has not only survived, but thrived by embracing innovation, education, and a deep connection to its community. And Dave Prentice has been an instrumental part of this transformation. Dave, thank you for being here today. I'm excited to hear more about this remarkable journey that your orchestra has been on. Why don't you dive in by talking about your background with the orchestra and what this journey has looked like over the past several years? I've been in the role of president and CEO since 08, and I was on the board as a volunteer before that, actually going back to uh, the mid-1990s. So that's when I started to be involved. And when you started, what what were the trends that you were seeing in terms of audiences and and then how have things changed over the last 10, 15 years? Well, you know, as with any organization, you know, what's what's relevant, you know, to begin with is the context or even you could say the stage of development of that organization. And so Mm -hmm. in the mid nineties, the symphony, the New Bedford Symphony was still kind of coming out of the transition from being say a community volunteer uh, orchestra to becoming a professional orchestra. Mm -hmm. Um, It had started, you know, before that time period, but it was still, I would classify it as being within within those parameters. And so we started to do strategic planning um, because we wanted to, one, build our audience. It was a pretty modest size audience at the time. And we wanted to see how we could improve the overall quality of the orchestra, the guest artists. And we also, right in that very first strategic plan, had a big big focus on education. And we we were doing some, you know, kind of traditional, typical type of educational program, but we wanted to start really seeing if we could push that to be something more. You have had a clear vision and a really well-constructed strategy in place with the orchestra undergoing four strategic plans in the last 14 years. Can you tell us a bit more about these plans and how they have driven NBSO's growth? You know, in in some ways, uh, there's, a, a I think, a, a really strong consistency in, in all our strategic plans. But of course, things evolve and you learn and then you try to, of course, apply the lessons learned. Um, so, you know, we've always focused on making more music and and really thinking about, you know, what's the right way to make that music. Um, uh, we've always really focused a lot on education and, and trying to think outside the box about what a symphony orchestra can do for um, uh, uh, education for kids and and. Um, extending that into the community. And then uh, probably the, you know, the strongest developments over time have been appreciating better what um, what kind of challenges, but also opportunities uh, are involved in reaching uh, all the parts of our community and, and, and not just, you know, kind of accepting the status quo or, or the tradition of, uh, of symphony orchestras, but really trying to go beyond that. And I think that's, you know, an area where there's, where we're really excited about that. And, and, and even though we still have, you know, a lot of work to do, I, I think, you know, 
what we've done so far is promising and and really gratifying to see. Mm. And you have such a commitment to being a, a real part of the community, and that appears to have been very successful for you. I mean, your budget has grown dramatically over the the past fourteen years, as as well as the amount of offerings in terms of concerts, which is which is incredible. Yeah, you know, so over about the last seven or eight years, our budget has essentially doubled. Uh, we're up to about one point eight million dollar annual budget, and. Uh, you know, going going back to the community and being part of a community, you, you know, in, in the field, uh, we're called a regional orchestra, right? Because we're not in one of the big, big cities. We don't have a national reputation or an international reputation. And, you know, that's fine. That's that's not why the New Bedford Symphony exists. So, so you know, we kind of reverse that and say, well, why do we exist? And, and obviously it's to serve our region, to serve our community. And and when you really look at it in that way, not just replicating, say, a big what a big orchestra does on a smaller scale, but really just saying, let's start with a blank slate and 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 what can a symphony orchestra mean to a to a community? Then I think you know you, your strategic planning, your vision, the partnerships that you want to build, and the way you make music and the kind of music that you make really just gets radically transformed. And and that's reflected in our growth, the budget growth. Uh, we've gone from five to eight concerts, and we do uh, multiple chamber series concerts in smaller venues to provide more access. And then we do so many smaller concerts now that are very powerful, obviously in a different way than, say, you know, 75 musicians in a, in a symphony orchestra playing on stage, but still they can be incredibly powerful. So these are all things that have driven our growth and, and hopefully deepened our impact in the community. Well, I think when you start from that question of what does it mean to be an orchestra for this community, you're bound to create things that, that make the community feel like you do care. And I think that's so key. When they actually feel like you care about them, they're going to reciprocate. Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing is care, right? Yeah. So, so you, you know, you, you get that mindset of like, what does it mean for a symphony orchestra to care about its community? Because obviously all orchestras care about making music for their community. But but if you really start to push that envelope and say, you know, what what does it mean for an orchestra like us to care about our community? Mm-hmm. Then you start to really develop some cool stuff, especially when you have that as a conversation with people in your community, right? Because we don't have the answers. We don't have, you know, all the answers we need to talk to the community and and our partners to see you know really what what we can do uh since we do care about having this impact i love that so in recent years we've seen a lot of cultural organizations struggling it's all over the news in part because of the major disruption that the pandemic has brought to their ticket sales so i'm curious how did your symphony weather all of the challenges that were brought by covid yeah um, it was obviously a, a huge challenge for everybody uh, in, in different ways. And and when we we, we had a concert uh, scheduled, for, I think it was March 20th, 2020, or maybe March 19th. And that was the week that pretty much everything shut down. We had a, we had done one rehearsal uh, and then everything we shut. We decided to cancel the concert and, and shut down. But uh, within seven days, we did our first online um, concert. Uh, it was two musicians, violin and cello. It was on Facebook, you know, Facebook Live. And we had an incredible response because people, you know, just desperately needed something. And, and when we saw that response, we said, oh, we have to keep doing this. And so over the course of the next year, we did over 100 
you know, small online performances. We did outdoor small performances. And then eventually within maybe nine months, we started doing, you know, a chamber orchestra. So, you know, about 35 to 40 musicians, uh, strings only to begin with on stage. And we, we did uh, streaming of those. Mm -hmm. So, so we continued to do the smaller things, but we also um, started, you know, when we could to do larger efforts. And plus we also converted all of our educational programs to an online format. So we were able to provide schools and also families. We, we designed programs to directly uh, be used by families and kids at home uh, to, um, to keep things going. Mm, that's amazing. I mean, you sent me the list of all of the things that took place during 2020 and it was incredible. I mean, you were, you were providing offerings for your community almost every single day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the creativity that our musicians showed, the, um, the flexibility that my staff showed uh, and the support that the board, my board of trustees had uh, for doing this, you know, rather than shutting down, rather than going dormant, we saw that, wait, there's actually more need now than ever. Mm -hmm. and, and so we need to find a way to stay active. And the musicians rose to the occasion and our staff figured out just really creative ways to make, make great things happen. And so now as we are seeing the pandemic wane, what are you seeing? Are our audiences returning to the in-person experiences? What's what's the outlook for this upcoming season? Yeah, the outlook uh, is, is really strong, um, uh, especially based on last year. So last year, our attendance exceeded our pre-pandemic best. So uh, we were really thrilled with that. Um, I think uh, I think in part, the momentum that we were able to build during the pandemic, being so active, really helped us attract some new people, mm. but also keep it engaged our core audience. And so, uh, so last year, which I would say is really kind of the first full year back, um, we uh, were thrilled that our attendance numbers were about uh, 1,500 more uh, uh, attendees over the course of our season than than uh, pre-pandemic. And that's that's no small increase. That's an increase of more than 23%. And we've continued with a lot of the smaller ensemble things, in-person partnerships with other organizations to to really keep things going. What can you tell me about the New Bedford community? Yeah, so we're you know about 55 miles south of Boston, uh, on the coast of Buzzards Bay, about halfway between Cape Cod and Providence, Rhode Island. So we have a, a pretty nicely you know defined service area that kind of goes from the uh, Rhode Island border up through uh, you know southeastern Mass and then to the Cape Cod Canal, you could say. Um, and uh, and the city itself, New Bedford, is about 100,000 uh, people population. Uh, there's a city 10 miles away called Fall River, which is also about 100,000 people. And in case, and, and in the case of both cities, uh, you know, wh whether you call them uh, gateway cities, post-industrial cities, et cetera, um, you know, there's a, a, a very rich and glorious history to them, but uh, definitely things have changed over time. So, uh, uh, you know, New Bedford is very much a working class city. A lot of immigrants come because of the fishing industry here. I would say that, you know, overall, uh, per capita wealth, educational attainment, uh, those numbers are a bit, you know, challenging. Uh, mm -hmm. And and so uh, so that is, you know, the environment that that we exist in, and it's the environment that we want to serve. You know, that's mm -hmm. why we're here. We want to really serve that community. And so the question is how. So with such a diverse community, 
I'm curious to hear how you think about serving those who have limited financial resources. How do you approach that issue of accessibility? Yeah, we, we try to do, you know, a, a, a number of things. Um, and, and of course, we're always trying things out to see what works. And also, you know, unfortunately, sometimes we find out what doesn't work, but that's okay, because we learn, we learn our lessons. Um, uh, but one thing we do is we have a program called Classical Community, which provides uh, free tickets to families with younger children. Uh, and we distribute those um, tickets through partnerships, through the schools, um, and we build up, you know, a relationship with uh, with people, families, and kids, uh, so that they can have access to our our concerts. And then, of course, we also invite them to the other kind of uh, engagement activities and programs that that we do in the community. Uh, another big aspect of what we do is is because we have you know you know a, a really robust uh, education program in schools. Is we look to see how can we extend that into families and into neighborhoods. Um, and, and so therefore, it's a question of how do we bring the music to them? I mean, ultimately, of course, we, we want everybody to come to our concerts, you know, at, at the, at, at the uh, Zaitarian Theater and, and to subscribe. But, you know, that's not really the only sign of success. And that's also not something that just happens, you know, quickly or overnight. And so how do you kind of build a path by first engaging people where they are and offering them the opportunity? Hey, if you like this. Here's, here's how you can get more of it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so we kind of try, again, beginning with the schools and with the families to, uh, to establish that relationship and then over time to build it so that in the long run, we can really have uh, uh, participation and access uh, for everybody uh, in our community that wants it. Mm, I love that. And of course, when it comes to accessibility, there's always that conversation around repertoire, you know, how much do we have to pivot to remain relevant and what's the best way to program for new audiences, but also keep our loyal audiences happy. So how do you, um, or you music director, uh, approach repertoire? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, that's a fascinating topic. There's lots of different <laughs> uh, opinions on it. And of course, there's different things that, that orchestras have tried. The approach we take is, is that on the one hand, we don't turn, you know, the canon or the tradition into this you know, an idol that has to just be worshipped and and can't be messed with. And, you know, we 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 don't go for that. Um, but on on the other hand, we don't go to the opposite end of the spectrum either to say that oh well, we just have to try everything that's new or everything that just you know is not considered you know traditionally what orchestras have done. And and I think kind of the guiding principle in that between those two extremes is you have to just always have your eyes on what is kind of the core relevance and power of music and and of course in our case it's classical music but that power and and that core ability is obviously part of all types of music so what we do is we always look to play really great music but we look for it in all different places and our music director Yannick Denner is just really talented and creative in finding the right mix of you know, some of the great classics, you know, of the canon, but also newer works um, that really can speak to people. And, and, and so what we believe is that, that with the right programming and um, the right type of presentation that really shows the connections between people and music. 
it's not really a type of education or music appreciation. It's really a question of connection mm. and, and great music of, of any genre. Great music connects people, right? It connects people to each other. It connects people to the music itself. And, and whether it's Beethoven or Brahms or a composer that's 20 years old today, that's writing you know, their first orchestral piece, Yaniv can find the, the right kind of music that does have that connection. Mm. And then when, when we present it that way, we, we have wonderful reaction from our audience and we grow our audience. We attract new people to this, this approach. I love it. I think it's tempting sometimes to fall into that trap of saying, well, we need to educate and we need to uh, expose our community to this music. And, and, and you're taking a very different approach. How do we show them how their lives connect to this, which I think is wonderful. Yeah, exactly. You just have to kind of do the work to really bring out that connection, which I, I would argue the connection is there, but it's not always obvious or it's mm -hmm. not something that, you know, people emphasize. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so if you really are mindful of that aspect of it, then really good things can happen. Mm. Absolutely. Terry, I want to pull you in on the conversation now, because as director of education, you've been an integral part of the New Bedford Symphony's growth and impact and outreach for many years. Tell us a little bit about what your education programs look like. We work with many different school systems. We actually partner with about, through our program, about 45 elementary schools in the surrounding area. So we do have a pretty big footprint, but the main focus of many of our education programs is within the New Bedford schools. And I would say there's about 40% of students from Hispanic background, and that number has definitely increased over the past 10 years. It's just a really rich diversity of people who are coming into New Bedford and then um, coming into the New Bedford schools. I've been with the orchestra now for about 13 years, so I've definitely seen, seen the growth of that throughout all the, the different schools in the system. So Terry, what is your approach, what is your philosophy around bringing classical music to these populations, to these schools in New Bedford? The way that we bring classical music is to try and focus on making connections to their, their environment, to their everyday learning, to always connect music to something, uh, our music, to something that already exists in their life or in the environment, and showing how Music is not this something that you just study on its own, but it's actually part of, of our world, of our environment. Um, and that is a huge focus for us. No matter what type of education program we're doing, we're always trying to teach by making connections. And that's really how we learn, right? We learn by making yes. connections. And so we, we highlight that as far as education programs. I love that. It, it reminds me of Nina Simon in The Art of Relevance, where she talks about with outsiders, where there's something that is not familiar or relevant to them, it doesn't feel welcoming to them. And so it's our responsibility as insiders to create relevant doorways into our world so that people can start to see, oh, wait, this, this is relevant to my life. And that's what you're doing. Dave, I see you nodding along. So you've read The Art of Relevance as well. Yeah, and I learned a lot from it, but I also felt that there was a really strong affinity uh, to what our outlook, you know, has been and, yeah. and has developed over the years, just through our own thinking and trial and error, and yeah. and getting input, you know, from from the communities that we're trying to serve. 
And how do you how do you do that in terms of getting input and 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 speaking with your community or getting to know your community? Are there different processes that you have in place to do that? Yeah, I mean it's a combination. I, I can speak to this, and then I know Terry can too from the educational side. But I would say from an organizational standpoint overall, it's a it's a mixture of some formal mechanisms and then a lot of informal and anecdotal type of things that we've just mm -hmm. done. We 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 really you know try to aspire to be a continuously learning organization. Um, and, and therefore we're always asking, you know, we, we do, um, audience surveys after every concert, uh, we, uh, we have receptions afterwards where we really, you know, talk to people and get their reactions. And then we come back and, and discuss it and, and talk about it. Um, uh, when we go out, we do a lot of partnerships, a lot of, our, uh, concerts, uh, smaller community concerts. It might just be two, three, four musicians playing in different locations uh, around uh, the, the city of New Bedford and other communities. Uh, by working with these other organizations, we're always getting input. We're always asking, you know, what do you need? What what can we do to help mm. what you're trying to do? And, and the organizations we partner with, I mean, some of them you would expect, you know, the art museum. Uh, we have an incredible maritime museum, the New Bedford Whaling Museum. The, we have a national historical park. Um, uh, we have a beautiful uh, whaling house mansion type of museum. So, so we partner with all of them, but we also partner with the Immigrant Assistance Center and we partner with the Cape Verdean Association of New Bedford and the New Bedford Historical Society, which is a black run organization focused on uh, the black history of New Bedford and its role in, um, abolition at the Underground Railroad. Uh, Frederick Douglass lived in New Bedford uh, oh, when wow. he escaped from slavery. So there's a, a rich heritage here. Uh, and, 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 and so we, you know, we partner with all of these groups asking them, you know, you know, your community, you know, your constituents much better than we do. So tell us so that we can learn. So, so that's how we do it from an organizational standpoint. And then I know Terry has her particular ways of doing it on the education side. Yeah, I think that I think the biggest word here is partnership. What does it mean to partner with an organization, a school, a community? And partnership means two-way street. And and you could just, you know, approach a, an organization and or a school and say, well, we have musicians and we play this music and we're going to bring it to your students. But it's different in a partnership where you ask what their goals and missions and concerns are and what is their focus and then see how we can support their goals at the and and kind of create this this synergy between us mm -hmm. and i think that's no matter who we partner with um that's always the first question is what is top of mind to them what what are their needs and how can we use our programming to support uh the mission of, of that community of that school and that leads to strong partnerships because they they realize that you know, bringing a, mu a music program into a school, you're not just looking at it as a, another venue. We, we look to do more than that to see how we can structure these opportunities to support the objectives of, of each of our, our partnering organizations. That's amazing. I mean, it's, it's exactly what I constantly am advocating for. The word relevant originally meant to be helpful. To be relevant means to have an outward facing mission where we're prioritizing the need that we see in our communities and we're using our art to meet those needs. And I love that you're approaching it in this way as well. We, we really try, try to take that approach and I think, think we've had some success with it. And of course, the beautiful irony of it is, you know, you realize that by asking somebody what we can do to help you, uh, 
ends up helping us a lot too. Absolutely. You know, it, it makes us more relevant. It makes it more meaningful uh, uh, what we're providing as part of this, you know, overall effort. And, and that's exactly what we have found, uh, especially in the education programs uh, where we always have a, a, a focus um, on the families too, not just the students, but their families and, and, and the, um, the type of experiences that we've uh, been a part of and, and have uh, learned from uh, is just really pretty phenomenal and very powerful. That's that's incredible. Now, you've really emphasized taking the orchestra out of the concert hall, which is a space that is not familiar for a lot of people and maybe not comfortable, it doesn't, doesn't feel welcoming for certain cultures. And you are, you're performing pop-up concerts throughout New Bedford and, and the region. So I'd love to hear more about this model and what is the response that you're seeing from the community? I mean, part of this, you know, even though we're a nonprofit mission-driven organization, of course, you know, finances is always a crucial aspect of achieving your mission. And 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 putting on a symphony concert in a concert hall is pretty expensive when you're yeah. a professional organization with incredible musicians and guest artists and a great conductor. And so, of course, you know, that 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 is certainly a part of our core. That's who we are. Uh, we love those big concerts and and having the concert hall filled isn't, you know, that's like such an incredible experience but um but from a financial standpoint you get you get to have so much more impact when you you kind of think small you know in, mm. in the sense of smaller forces so you know a solo violin you know playing in the right place in the right way at the right time can really be just as powerful and maybe even more powerful than a whole orchestra so again you know looking at partnerships uh talking to organizations often you know performing either at their location or finding another location that we both want to focus on and you know sometimes it's an environmental group and so we're out in the woods we're playing we're actually in two weeks we're doing a music in the woods with a, a partner um, the lloyd center for environmental studies um, and we go to playgrounds and parks uh, and then you know obviously indoor venues too but again, it's 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 in a way it's a very creative process because it's like all right, you know, here here's sort of the, the the constituency we're trying to reach. This is what interests them, so let's go to a place that interests them. And then you know, how do we shape that into a uh, a real, authentic, meaningful musical experience? Mm. Uh, making sure that things are fun, you know, is 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 a huge part of what we do. Um, and then obviously beyond that, sometimes it's something just really moving or just something really passionate, uh, again, depending on the circumstances. And so, you know, we kind of challenge our musicians to say, okay, this is the outline of what we're thinking. You know, what what can you bring to the table? What do you suggest from, you know, the, from your musical perspective on what could really be powerful in, in this situation. And, and so it really happens, you know, case by case. And then of course, when we find something that really works, we'll try to duplicate it and grow it. Uh, but we're always trying new things too. So constantly having that spirit of kind of experimentation and then learning, you know, from it afterwards. Coming out into the community with small groups or individual musicians, it's, it's not only, um, a chance to be more responsive, to be able to be in the moment and then do something that is specific for the need in that moment, to be responsive to the person you're in front of. But it also allows um, many members of our community to get to know the musicians in a way that you can't when you're sitting in an audience in a theater, mm -hmm. you know, the, the orchestra's up on the stage. So it becomes this um, way for for people to to meet the musicians, get to know them as as human beings 
And mm. then to allow for moments of, I want to say like almost improvisation. So we did a program at the Gomes School uh, last year, and we had a wonderful violinist who was having the children select a flight pattern, a bird flight pattern, and then playing a melody that moved just like that bird flight pattern as the children were flapping and moving along. And then just to have a moment where he's responsive to what the child wants to do and, and taking the cues, musical cues, from the child and the way that they want this bird to be flying through the sky and then uh, our musician to be able to really create something specific. Those moments are really special, but also um, ask musicians to you know move away from the printed page, right? And just yeah. be more in the moment to, to, to perform. And then we did another program last year where we brought a trio of musicians up to the Taunton watershed and did a program about salt marsh ecology and balance in music and balance in the living parts of an ecosystem. And to just be able to, you know, it, with that small group, it just makes it so easy and portable to move to different locations and to give these kinds of experiences. And then afterwards, the, the, they, had a, they had a turtle and some fiddler crabs, but just those kinds of experiences, you know, the impact, high impact can come from just one, two, three musicians. Mm -hmm. And when the, when our students get to know these musicians in, in such a, a, you know, a very deep way and know their personalities, when they do come to the concert hall, they have that connection. You know, I know that person and it feels a lot more connected to their experience. Absolutely. I think a lot of times arts organizations think, okay, 2023 consumers want an immersive experience. So we have to spend a lot of money and make something really elaborate so that they're, you know, really enjoying themselves. But what Nina Simon says is actually they want participatory experiences where you being there actually has an impact on the outcome. And so it sounds like with some of these examples that you give, like the children are choosing a flight pattern and then the musician creates something from that, that is a participatory experience that they're going to remember forever. They had a, a part in that, that creative process, which I, which I think it's a shared experience. Yeah. It's a performer and an observer, but both are working together to create something. And that's, that's when it's really special. Absolutely. Yeah. We were in a, an elementary school and the trio was doing a program where they link the way that animals move in the way that music moves and they started by just talking about their own pets yeah. and they talked about their pets and then analyzed the way that they moved and then played melodies that match that same motion and and for children to see that connection that these are people they have they have pets um yeah. and and make that connection in in fact when when we go into schools we purposely um when we're performing in schools we are not in concert dress we're not in you know, all black, they wear jeans so that, like you said, they're not viewed as, you know, just professional musicians, but they are human beings that we can relate to. Absolutely. In New Bedford, there's a selfie museum. It's in one of the old mills and it's all these different like tableaus and and, and settings where people can go in and take selfies of themselves. So we were doing a, a concert. Uh, we, we do an event called Symphony on Tap at, in the mill with the full orchestra. Um, it's kind of like a club setting rather than a concert setting. Um, but what we did is before, between the rehearsal and the performance, we invited all the musicians to come to the selfie museum with their instruments. Uh, and we had hired a photog professional photographer 
And so we got all these incredible shots of our musicians hamming it up and being goofy in, in this selfie museum with all oh this gosh. fun stuff. And our conductor too, our music director, who's, you know, who can be as goofy as anybody. He, he loved it. We have a great picture of him sitting in a bathtub. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and so we're using that for our promotions this year. We're releasing them, you know, periodically throughout the whole year, just to show, you know, another side of the musicians that people wouldn't see just looking at them up on stage. I love that so much because it takes them off the pedestal right yeah. takes them yeah. off that sort of we have to revere them and I was yeah. I wanted to ask about your artists and and your music director um I have seen in the past sometimes music directors and artists are very reluctant to sort of stray from the the confines of mm -hmm. tradition that they're so used to that they're you know they've been brought up in but it sounds like you're not dealing with any resistance um no no, well, that's the result of a good search process. We knew what we wanted. Yeah. And, uh, and our conductor, Unique know who's been with us now, we just renewed him uh, his contract for the third time. Uh, you know, in that search process that came out of a strategic plan, we, you know, we knew what we wanted. We wanted somebody who wanted to shake things. I mean, we, obviously we wanted somebody who was, you know, at the highest level of, of musicianship and artistry and we have that with you need. Um, but we also wanted the personality and the ability to communicate and yeah. so, for example, what Terry was talking before about making connections, Yaniv uh, does a lot of talking uh, from the stage, or at least a lot compared to maybe a more traditional approach. I think I think he does exactly the right amount of talking. Let me put it that way: not too much, not too little. Yeah. And but but I would never describe what he says is educational. Um, uh, it's it's making connections. You know, it's it's we we did a you mentioned immersive. Uh, we actually did a concert called Immersive Mahler. Uh, uh, where we played a Mahler uh, symphony, the ninth. Um, but Yaniv, in the first half, really broke it down into its different parts and made connections between the music and life and people's emotions and feelings. And by doing that in the first half of the concert, then we performed the whole thing in the second half straight through. And, and the reaction we got from audience members afterwards, I mean, you, you know, you know, Mahler, it's like a lot of people won't even show up for Mahler. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and he's not always, you know, the easiest sell, at least say in a market like ours. But now people are like, oh, I love Mahler. In fact, the best, the best quote we got was from a person who said, you know, I came to your Disney Pups concert uh, in January, and then I heard about this immersive Mahler, so I decided to come. So, uh, so now I love Mahler. <laughs> that, that's exactly the progression you want to create. So what are your thoughts around that kind of process of bringing in new people, attracting new audiences? We, we we really view that kind of as a path. Uh, you know, we don't expect to do one outreach encounter and then have them become, you know, seasoned subscribers and 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 all of that. Even though the Disney Tamala path can can happen, <laughs> but I, I don't know if that's gonna happen, you know, every single time. Yeah. And so we think of like what are the steps that um that are involved to kind of have the ultimate uh result, which would be to have classical music be a part of more people's lives. Um, and so we, usually the first step is we go to them, you know, and and, and so uh, the, the event that Terry mentioned, we partnered with the Gomes Elementary School, they had an open house and we turned it into a music festival with musicians, interactive, participatory, and we, you know, really connected with families and we got their contact information, if, you know, they were interested in doing more. Hmm. And then the next step, well, Let's bring them to our venue, the concert hall. It's the Zaitarian Performing Arts Center. But we're not going to ask them to come to 
a regular season subscription concert. We're going to design an event just for them. And so we did a, a, a musical maze family event. And we invited all the families from the elementary school. And we had our musicians there and we had activities and food and and it was a lot of fun. And then we thought, okay, we're still not ready to, I mean, obviously if at any point any any of these participants want to jump right in, right. then we do that. We have a program where we provide free tickets and all of that. But we're not going to assume that, right? And so the next step was let's invite them with free tickets to our holiday pops concert. So now they're at an actual, you know, public concert event that we have mm -hmm. with our subscribers and everybody else. And we seat them all together and Terry greets them. And, you know, we really make it a personal experience for them. So now we've we've done a three-step process, right? We've gone to them, we've had them come to us, but it's a special event just for them. And then we invite them to, you know, a broader event, but it's really something that, you know, is, is kind of an easy sell. Um, and then of course, the steps after that, we hope, you know, at least to a certain percentage are going to be, well, you know, I, I really want to check out one of your subscription concerts now, one, one of your, you know, regular symphony concerts now. And, and again, we have a program to facilitate that on an ongoing basis. And so along the way, you know, they pick up, you know, they learn kind of, you know, what this experience is like. Um, and we are there with them. So it's like we're in this together. We're not just kind of throwing you to the wolves or uh, expecting you to do this all on your own. And so like on the one hand, we don't, you know, we don't want to be condescending or anything like that. And so you have to be careful not to overdo it. Um, but on the other hand, we want to recognize that this is new territory for a lot of people. And we just kind of want to be there with them during that process rather than just expecting them to navigate it on their own. That is amazing. I'm really curious to hear more about the event that you held in your concert hall space for these families. You know, we invited them to come to the Z. It was a Sunday afternoon. We called it Musical Maze. And really the goal was to get them to explore all, all areas of the theater through a, um, it was actually a, they had to find the mystery word. There were letters. Yeah hidden along all parts on the stage and in the, in the hall, all parts of the, the Zyterian Theater to get them comfortable with navigating through that area. And at all these different locations where we might've had a hidden or mystery letter, there were musicians to interact with, to perform. We, the kids got to go up on stage and dance. If it was your first time coming to the Zyterian Theater, the first time is that you're on stage. Like how <laughs> awesome is that? I love it. Um, and then, and then they, uh, the kids were great. They solved the the mystery word, and they received a prize. And we we had um, and we had some food and some crafts going on in there with our musicians. And what was interesting to me was that when the families came and did this activity, that I felt was going to kind of be like a wine through, and then you leave, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't. They, they all congregated in that area. And it was so interesting to me to watch all the families getting mm -hmm. to know each other and wanting to talk and engage with each other. And I thought, you know, for the first time coming to, maybe coming to the theater and having that kind of experience with your children, um, being able to go in places that not everybody gets to go in the theater when they come to a performance mm -hmm. was, was a wonderful way to, to make that, that connection and also to know that it was just for their school community. Our goal was this might be their first time coming into the theater and how do we want them to feel the next time they want to feel like they have they know where they are they know how to navigate the space and and I thought that the idea of making it kind of this maze where you had to you had a challenge as a family 
you know, would push them into all these different spaces. I love it. That's such a great example. I believe you recently published a book. Is that correct? We wrote a book uh, called A Concert at the Zoo. And <laughs> the idea was that uh, people went to a concert at the zoo, but the musicians didn't show up. It must have been something contractual. I'm not sure why they didn't show up. <laughs> but in, in their absence, the, the uh, animals realized that they're just going to have to step up and play. And the story um, was beautifully illustrated by Olivia Cucci. And uh, David McKenzie composed a piece for narrator and cello. Um, and this really was the start. This book was the start of a new program we have for pre-K music and literacy. And throughout the story, each animal is linked to an instrument which shares the same syllable count and syllable stress pattern. So cat, drum, monkey, tuba. And what we do is after we perform this book for them, I go back in the classrooms with them three times to teach them speaking and drumming patterns from the words in the story, learning how to drum words that show syllable count and syllable stress. And after a few sessions, they start composing their own animal rhythm, animal instrument rhythm, rhythmic combinations. And then we go to the zoo and they perform their compositions for the animals, um, which was really fun to watch with, um, you know, poor elephant when they're all there going, elephant, elephant. <laughs> they sound like future protesters. Um, <laughs> And then, and then after that, we, we do a final assembly where we perform the book again, which is for narrator and cello. And the students perform all the, all the rhythmic um, phrases they've learned through the program for their families. And then we finish by gifting them the book. So that's, it's called A Concert at the Zoo. Um, it has really uh, been a wonderful way for us to, you know, we, we, we had, you know, our learning concert program is, is kind of the beast. It's, it's, it serves the most schools, but it's really directed for grades two through five. But this was a way for us to develop a program for really early learners. And often in times where there was no music specialist for the students. So we really coming in are the only music specialists for these students. So um, yeah, Dave got us started on that book. We didn't think we <laughs> could write a children's book, um, but we did. <laughs> yeah. but we decided we wanted to do a pre-K music and literacy program. And Terry being the genius that she is, did the research about how do kids learn, you know, at that level about reading. And, and so there's the, this, there's this idea of prosody about syllables and accents and Terry's like, Oh, syllables and accents and words. Well, listen, we have syllables and accents in, in music too. Right. So again, making the connection between those two things, one of the things that have developed in our philosophy of how we provide educational programs is, um, you know, we were always focusing on the kids and, and, and asking teachers, what do you need? Um, and we were starting to have some real success connecting with these kids and the teachers wanted us to be there and they were supporting us. And, 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 and at the end of the program, these kids were really connected to us and, and felt bonded to us. And, and of course, you know, we talk about audience building, right? And having full impact. What we did in the past was say to the kids, all right, goodbye, see you later. <laughs> and, and we always felt kind of bad about that. And we said, how do we extend this? And so there's two things. One is, how do we extend that work, you could say leverage that work, to um, developing relationships with families? So now every education program we do, at the end, there's always a family component. There's, a fa there's an event designed to bring in the families. And so the kids learn all this um, 
literacy and accents and performing drum taps. And, so, and then, you know, we, uh, the school sends out a notice saying your kids have been working hard on this project and, you know, we'd love for you to come into the school to see what they've done. And so I'll, I'll tell you, you know, from an emotional standpoint, looking at this room, there was a small auditorium filled with these little preschoolers, all their parents, siblings are up there uh, watching and the kids are just so proud showing them what they've learned. And of course the parents are so proud. Mm -hmm. And of course the teachers and the principals are like, yes, we have family engaged at the school with mm -hmm. our kids. Uh, and so it was just like a win, 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 win type type of situation. Absolutely. Um, but it, it shows you the power of when you really bring all of these different elements together and you think about extending the impact beyond kind of the normal focus. Um, it's just amazing what starts to happen. It creates a dynamic, you know, of its own that just gets stronger and stronger. So, so that that going through that process really helped us test some of our ideas, and and I think it validated a lot of the things that we're we're uh, figuring out and trying to do more and more of. That's amazing, and and there's this you know really prominent theme of connections through everything that mm -hmm. you're telling me. You are connecting families to the school. You're connecting the school to the families. You're connecting everyone to what you do. It's just it's mm -hmm. incredible. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about your funding model? So, so it, it, it takes an, a, a number of different forms, which I think, you know, is probably pretty typical, you know, in the nonprofit world. I mentioned the city of New Bedford, about 100,000 population, a working class town, very rich heritage, culturally, historically, ethnically. Um, uh, the surrounding communities of New Bedford are a lot of seaside communities. Um, uh, that are beautiful um, and uh, attract uh, people from Boston, from New York. Um, and, and so we have uh, a lot of supporters who care about us and care about the city of New Bedford and care about the kids in New Bedford. And so they've been incredibly generous. You know, over the years, we've developed a, a pretty strong funding base through individual donors. And then, of course, we always are seeking grants and corporate support. Uh, and we get a little government funding, uh, Mass Cultural Council. And, and then with the school district, as we've established our credibility with the school districts and they see that this, because of this connection concept, it's it's not just about the music, it's also about them, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and they're like, hey, you know, that I can fund. And so, so, so we've been able to put these programs together. We usually do it as a pilot and then people see what it is and they get excited about it and we can kind of prime the pump so that these things eventually become um, uh, sustainable again through that combination of, of all those funding sources. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's how we how we try to piece it all together and we're always looking at how do you scale these things up how do you make them you know financially sustainable over the long term because we don't want to be a fly-by-night type of situation we really want to have a staying presence and in all of the things that we're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think when you are able to connect donors to something they yeah. care about, they are willing to open their pockets. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so just by coincidence, when we had that family event at, at the uh, preschool, uh, we had some funders along with us to see see the thing in action. Uh, we'll bring donors and, and other funders into classrooms. Uh, you know, we mm -hmm. get the permission to bring them in so that they can see exactly what it is that we're doing uh and uh and it is it's very powerful you know it, yeah. it's it's really really something that helps motivate yeah and bring them to the young people's concert which is always a blast right yeah to see when, when that program culminates in that last yeah phase 
and and this year it will culminate with all the children in our learning and concert program and composing a new piece for orchestra. So I am super excited to to hear that culminate. And that is a wonderful place to invite people from our community, our donors, our board to come and hear the orchestra and see the the enthusiasm. Should there be a better word than enthusiasm for how the kids (laughs) are at the end? Um, (laughs) Sometimes it's a little out of control. You you think you're at a rock concert. The kids just really, oh man, they get so yeah. into it, especially as Terry mentioned, when they see the, the musicians from the education trio that they've seen before and they see them up on stage and, and our musicians, they ham it up. They, they like being rock stars. And right. so they, they really play to the crowd and uh, oh, wow. the kids just they really just get into their it. Minds. Just, they lose their really minds. What are you excited about? Um, what's coming up this season that you're really excited about? Uh, we're going into a new strategic planning process. So that tells you all you need to know about me. I get excited about strategic planning process. But, you know, uh, we've talked a lot about connections, right? So we make connections within the programs, each individual program. That's Terry's whole, you know, focus and, and philosophies, make these connections. But then we also connect programs to everything else. So one thing we say is, uh, you know, everything is connected to everything. And so, so therefore, if you see that and you do that, then you start to multiply uh, the impact. Um, and the other thing we say, in addition to, you know, the focus on connections is we, we always talk about extension. Like how do we extend what we're doing to the next step? So like extending it from a, a, a program focused on kids to involving their parents and then involving community groups in, in their neighborhoods. And, and so always, you know, how do we extend this? How do we connect things and how do we extend things? And so what I'm excited about is that because over the last couple of years coming out of the pandemic, we've been able to put a lot of these things to the test and, and learn from them through pilot programs. We're now going to start scaling up and we're going to have, you know, even more impact, more connections and more extensions. And, and, and maybe the most important part of that too is uh, Terry's mentioned the learning and concert program, which focuses on second through fifth grade. We have the pre-K uh, literacy program that can also go up eventually to first and second grade, because our, our grand vision is that we want to have a, a meaningful, robust presence in the lives of kids and their families, pre-K through 12, right? That That's our focus. If you read the history of classical music uh, and different, you know, uh, thought pieces about the future of classical music, you know that, you know, back in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, the 1930s and 40s, there was kind of a, a ubiquity about classical music. It, you know, it was on the radio. It was in the cartoons. It was on the, you know, front page of Time magazine. Um, and so even though, um, you know, classical music can have, you know, various opinions about it, everybody was exposed to it. Everybody knew what it was. Well, that doesn't exist anymore, right? right? People can grow up nowadays and never really even know classical music exists. So what our underlying vision is, is we want to make classical music ubiquitous again mm-hmm. in our in our service area. You know, that's what we care about. That's what we're responsible for. So in our community, we want to make classical music ubiquitous again. And now you, it can't be ubiquitous like it was in the old days. Like we're not going to get on national uh, radio or, or things like that. And we don't want to. We want to be on the phones of all the families that we serve. Uh, we want to be in the schools. We want to be in the playgrounds and in the parks and the museums and the concert halls of all the where all the people are that 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 we want to reach. And and so 
the challenge, of course, is how do you do that in a way that you can afford to do it? <laughs> and, and, and so you have to be creative. And, and, and that is what I get most excited about that I really think we're starting to unlock the key to figuring this out and that we're on the verge of really getting it to a whole other level of, of making classical music have this kind of ubiquity again mm -hmm. and really giving access to anybody that wants it. What about you, Terry? What are you looking forward to this season? The repeat of our fanfare project. Oh, yeah. Here's a case where I felt like what we provided was more than music education. We provided a moment to reflect and show gratitude for people and and children's lives, which I think it's sometimes we, we just go, 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 go. We don't have opportunities to really stop and show that appreciation. So students after the school day is finished, um, coming in and doing a project which asks them to pick someone who is important in their life who they think is deserving of their own fanfare. Like, you know, when they walk in the room, they should have a fanfare playing. So they, they pick this important person uh, and then they compose a fanfare for that individual. And they, they work with me to compose these fanfare melodies. We use a graphic notation program for all of our compositions so that they do not need to have previous experience reading notes on a staff and they, they compose these uh, fanfares and then write a dedication explaining why that per why they chose that person, how have they been significant and why are they so important that they definitely need their own fanfare. And then we culminated by inviting all those participants to an event and the child would get up and read their dedication. And we had an NBSO uh, musician, a trumpet player come and perform each of the students' fanfares for their, their recipient. And Musically, okay, it checked the box. Like I got to teach them the difference between moving in steps, skips and jumps. We learned about certain rhythmic figures, dotted rhythms. So as the music teacher in me, I'm like, check, check, check. Mm -hmm. But when, when we watched these presentations, they were so incredibly emotional and impactful for all the people involved, for the child, for the person who was receiving this. And then for all of us to be witnessing that moment of a child really reflecting on someone that is truly important to them. Everybody just starts bawling. And the hugging and the emotion in the room, I mean, it's it's just beyond belief. And, and you know, Terry came up with this program. We did it once as a pilot. So now we're scaling it up. We actually got some funding when we uh, pitched this to one of our very generous supporters. And he and his wife said, we want to make this uh, replicable. And so we're putting it into a package. We're going to partner with our local illustrator to it in the form of like a graphic novel, a fanfare workbook, so that we're going to make it really easy for any organization or any orchestra to bring this to their community. Including the, the uh, technology to have a graphic composition program free and available online. Right. So even if the teacher who's doing the project is not a musician, they, we can facilitate bringing down any barriers to previous, you know, musical yeah. experience or reading or notation mm -hmm. to be able to uh, allow students to compose and play back their compositions. So I think that was just an example of where, where obviously we have, we have learning objectives, right? Mm -hmm. We're music educators and we do want our students to understand how music is constructed and be able to have go through that creative process themselves, but to also add in this 
other element, which can't even describe, made the experience so incredibly powerful. And and the reason why we are looking to expand this and bring this, you know, outside of our own organization is that it was three sessions. It's only three sessions. So it's not like you have to take a whole part of your year to do this project. It was very, very quick, but extremely impactful. So it shows how an outside arts organization partnering with after school groups or in the schools or in our communities, the the impact can just be magnified if you, you know, just think a little bit about what what our participants might get out of it. Terry, I just love your ideas. And I'm curious, where do you get your inspiration for these these innovative outreach programs? Yeah, I mean, my, my background is in concept-based arts integration. So not arts integration, but concept-based arts integration, mm-hmm. which is very different in that all, all any connecting subject areas coming together are by way of a shared concept that is rich, authentic, and relevant in all connecting subject areas equally. Not singing about the dinosaurs. Okay, that's not equal. Yes. That's, that's the arts serving the learning in an academic subject area where the, the academic subject area is like, yay, they learned about the dinosaurs. And we're all like, well, what musical goals and objectives have I met with my students? So that's the first thing is concept-based arts integration, finding that level playing field so that when we connect a musical subject to another subject area, we are, it's a two-way street. We are, one is supporting the learning and understanding in the other. And that is just a good educational model. If we understand, you know, transfer of learning, my background goes a little bit into um, human development and cognitive psychology and understanding how do we come to understand music. Terry and Dave, thank you so much for joining me. I think what you're doing is incredible and inspired, and I'm so excited to share your story with the broader arts community. Thank Thanks. You. We appreciate it. We appreciate thank it very you. much. Yeah, this has been a great conversation, Ruth. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you both for being here. If you want more actionable ideas for growing your audiences by centering the customer, subscribe to the blog at cultureforhire.com or follow me on your preferred social platform. Be sure to click follow so you don't miss the next podcast episode and help others find their way to this podcast by leaving a rating or review.